Chapter 41 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter 41 The Impeachment of the Premier. The House was filling rapidly when Longley took his place at the head of the ministerial bench to the right of the Speaker's chair. There was a pregnant silence in the atmosphere which betokened expectancy of something unusual and interesting. A bystander, ignorant of the personal current which underlay the strife of political parties, would certainly have noted and marveled at the shadow of troubled gravity which clouded the faces of the members as they filed into their seats. There was no buzz of conversation, no cheery interchange of jokes. The ministers looked thoughtful and whispered together with an uneasy air of assurance. The leader of the opposition, after calmly surveying the House in the manner of a general who calculates the chances of victory and defeat, smiled sardonically and buried his head over a pile of notes. It was remarked that whereas the cross benches were fuller than usual, the two sides of the House were more fairly balanced than could have been anticipated from the result of the recent elections. There was a significant solemnity in the attitudes of all present. The sergeant-at-arms sat like a picture of time with his hourglass. The new speaker, nervous under the consciousness of his lately donned trappings, had yet stiffened with a certain artificial dignity beseeming the gravity of the occasion, so that the brief prayers which inaugurated the proceedings seemed less a solemn farce than the prelude to deliberations of deep and agitating interest. Certain formal business was transacted. A petition, which censured a particular government measure during the recess, was read and laid upon the table. The speaker made his short report, and then one of the new members rose to move the appointment of a committee to prepare, and afterwards, the adoption of the address in reply to the speech. The ministerial program was commented upon more critically than approvingly. The orator was an old colonist who prided himself upon being a freelance, and who cherished mildly emphatic views, which for years he had been longing to air in the assembly, and which, from their varied nature, imparted a savour of irrelevancy to his remarks. But all this was child's play. The premier sat, his head bowed, unhearing, unheeding. The hours were growing, and surely it was time that he should receive Constance's letter. His mind was crowded with images and conjectures which obscured his outer vision, and it was with difficulty that he brought himself to the point of replying lucidly to a question put to him by one of his colleagues, and roused himself by a vigorous effort to comment upon a point of order which had been raised by a truculent member upon the opposition side. The mover's speech was prosy, and there were increasing signs of impatience visible among the occupants of the benches and the galleries. Still, the leader of the opposition sat brooding over his notes, quietly biding his time when— as several there predicted, he would spring forth like a lion from his lair. The address was duly seconded by a more strictly ministerial adherent. Then, just as the dusk was falling, Mr. Middleton slowly rose, and with his hands in his waistcoat pockets, balanced himself upon the very edge of the step upon which he stood, and with a bland smile and studied air of repression, addressed himself to the chair. No lamb could at the onset have bleated more mildly, he complimented the Honourable Member of Narang upon the admirable manner in which the adoption of the address in reply had been moved. He was sure that the Honourable Member, from his long labours as a colonist and varied experience, 
would be a most valuable addition to the house, etc. He believed that it had been usual upon various occasions, before dealing with the proposals of the government, to comment upon the proceedings of the ministry during the recess. The recently published list of appointments and dismissals in the departments of the Minister for Works and the Postmaster General called for attention. The frequent use by members of the government of special trains and the abuse of telegraphic privileges were matters to which he thought it was necessary to make allusion. The ratification of certain contracts without the authority of the House invited censure, and so on in a soft strain of animadversion till the leading features of the ministerial policy, the Kuya Railway and the Great Loan Bill, were trenchantly assailed. Then smooth generalizations became pointed personalities. The speaker's voice waxed louder, and his gesticulations more impressive. Fire darted from his eyes, and venom gathered upon his tongue. Each word bore a carefully primed and cutting reference to the premier. It was evident that he had risen to attack not the policy, but the man. During the last session, he cried at the close of his preliminary peroration, the premier had announced that it was his determination to stand or fall upon the question of southern railway extension. Upon that ostensible point of division between government and opposition, honorable members now seated in the House were supposed to have taken sides. How many had deeply considered the true interests of the colony, and had seriously represented to their constituents the real bearings of the question, was a matter of private opinion. The Premier had trafficked upon his personal prestige, and, by dint of affected magnanimity and overwhelming braggadocio, had contrived to warm himself into the confidence of the country. But it was his, Mr. Middleton's, opinion that only a sharp revulsion, which the disclosure of certain hidden facts impeaching the character of the Premier as a citizen and a statesman, must inevitably produce, was needed to turn the tide of popular feeling against the lavish expenditure of borrowed money upon public works, and to condemn the government policy as strenuously as it now appeared to be advocated. After a tirade upon the purely unselfish and patriotic motives by which he himself was actuated, the leader of the opposition continued. It had yet to be ascertained what was the result of the late general election. Excited cries of hear, hear from the government benches and the true value of the Premier's personal and political prestige required to be tested by the light of an extraordinary and unexpected revelation, which in the course of the last few days, he might almost say hours, had horrified and undeceived him. These disclosures had, contrary to his own inclination, been forced upon him. Subsequent inquiries which he had made, and which he might add were now in further progress, had confirmed them, and he felt it his duty in the present condition of political affairs, and in the face of a critical measure affecting the most vital interests of the colony, to place before the House the facts which had been brought under his notice. With the instinct of defense, Dyson Maddox rose to ask whether the charges to which the Honorable Member alluded bore directly upon the political career of the Premier. Mr. Middleton asserted that they had a strong if indirect bearing upon the Honorable Gentleman's connection with the politics of Leckhart's land. A point of order was mooted and hotly discussed. It was declared that the leader of the opposition was not justified in bringing forward charges against any honorable member which did not come under the jurisdiction of the House. Several members spoke, and it was finally weakly ruled by the Speaker that Mr. Middleton should be allowed to proceed. During the opening of Mr. Middleton's speech, 
Longleat had sat indifferent and motionless, with that dazed expression upon his face which upon his entrance had attracted universal attention, and had caused the whisper to go round that the Premier looked as though he had had a fit. It was expected at the onset that he would rise in hot wrath and indignantly repudiate his enemy's accusations, and the gallery eagerly anticipated the culmination of an already sufficiently thrilling debate in a stormy scene, which should be unparalleled in the annals of the House. But Longleat allowed the question of order. Clearly his opportunity for protest, to pass by, and indeed seemed too deeply absorbed in the examination of a packet of letters which had been brought in and handed to him, to take any heed of the altercation. Before him was Constance Valancy's cold confession of her infatuation for Fielding, of her calm determination, seeing that shame must inevitably be her portion, to combine the reward of such love as hers with the penalty of social degradation, her expression of thanks for his kindness, her formal regret that henceforth their paths must lie apart her hope that in the not very distant future he might meet with a woman who could honourably bear his name, and be a second mother to his children. It was a sorry consummation to the sinful projects which had dominated alike his affection for his daughter and his political ambition, and had heated him to a fierce feverish pitch than the most burning impulses of youth. A passion rushing with all the impetuosity of middle age and suddenly checked, is more overwhelming in its disastrous effect than the most terrible outside calamity. Longleat's head dropped upon his breast. The room became all blackness. The voices of the disputants sounded in his ears like the roaring of threatening waves. It seemed to him later on that he had been seized with unconsciousness, though he knew not for how long. When he awoke to light and hearing his brain surged, and he had a confused sense of impending ruin which was useless to try and avert. And it was some minutes before he was able to grasp the meaning of Mr. Middleton's denunciatory harangue. It was about this point that he took up the thread of his adversary's oration. The career of the honourable gentleman now sitting at the head of the government had for the last twenty years been brought too prominently before the public to require comment in that place. Mr. Longleat had not sought to hide the fact that he had commenced life in the colony as a bullock driver upon the Kuya Road. He had openly gloried in his elevation, by means of his single-handed exertions, to the high position he now held. He had started in Leckhart's land from almost the first rung of the ladder, and though in the minds of some suspicion had lain lightened, no one had taken the trouble to inquire from what lower level he had sprung. Cries of shame! Order! Hear, hear! sounded through the chamber. It was to a period antecedent to that which embraced the Leckhart's land stage of the Premier's history that he, Mr. Middleton, wished to call to the attention of honourable members of that house. The leader of the opposition paused pointedly. All eyes were bent towards the ministerial bench and fixed themselves upon Longleat. The Premier lifted his head. His mouth twitched. He turned irresolutely to his colleagues and half rose from his seat. Then an expression of dogged desperation settled upon his features. His head drooped again, and his eyes were lowered upon the carpet. To the gallery his silence seemed to imply disdain. But among the members who were in ignorance of Middleton's drift, there was a movement of mistrust and alarm. This was not the line of attack which had been anticipated. It had been supposed that government measures during the recess would be called into question, 
and upon various points the ministers were armed with retaliating arguments, though the volley of aimless abuse which they had expected had not, to their minds, appeared to demand any special strategic defense. But the cutting gravity and evident conviction with which Mr. Middleton spoke suggested more serious possibilities. Could it be that a mystery lay hidden in the past life of the Premier which would dishonor him in the sight of men? That a crime, the heinousness of which warranted its being brought forward under present circumstances, was to be laid to his charge? It occurred to several to demur at the informality of the proceedings, and one or two black sheep reflected inwardly upon the unpleasant consequences to be apprehended from an indiscriminate investigation into the obscurity of private history. A further protest was made against the irrelevancy of the discussion, and Mr. Middleton hotly defended his line of conduct. The past of great men, he urged, and he was far from denying that the Premier had achieved greatness of no ordinary kind in the annals of a young nation, was the property of the State. How much more so when in a momentous crisis, such as was made evident by the present juncture of political affairs, the faith of the colony was pinned upon its principal legislator. The charge he had to make did not touch upon the Premier's position as a private member of the House, in which case it would be obviously unnecessary and ill-judged to drag out of the mire past incidents in his former life which might be buried in oblivion. But upon his position as the political leader of an important colony, who had identified himself so completely with the interests of Leichardt's land that her very credit and reputation might be said to have become embodied in the person of her representative. It was but just that the country should be made aware what manner of man had sneaked into the good graces of the public and assumed the reins of power. He would make his statement. Let the Premier deny it if he was able. When the matter had been placed before the House, he, Mr. Middleton, would leave it to the judgment of the Speaker and of Honourable Members to determine whether the extraordinary circumstances of the case admitted of any other line of action on his part. Suddenly Longleat rose. He folded his arms and, with a look of defiant desperation, surveyed the House while he thundered forth. "'Well, then, let the Honourable Member for North Leichardt's Land say what he has got to say again me.' The groans and hisses which proceeded from upstairs drowned Mr. Middleton's accusing voice, and a bushman, leaning over the railing, shouted, "'Speak up, and let's have done with it. It ain't the Premier that's a sneak and a liar.' A commotion ensued. It was ruled that the galleries should be cleared, and the excited and disappointed crowd was forcibly ejected. The substance of Middleton's lengthy prelude and accusation may be briefly summarized that in the year 18, dash, Thomas Prankard, a youth employed by the estate of Sir Henry Calder's, Bart, of Calderwoods in Suffolk, England, had upon the occasion of a poaching affray, during which he, with others, had gone to the assistance of the keepers, shot Captain Harry Calder's, the eldest son of his master, through the heart. The two young men, having quarrelled some days previously, it was supposed that Prankard had made use of this opportunity to commit a deliberate murder and had endeavoured to disarm suspicion by a semblance of accident. But at the trial, which took place some months later, the supposed seduction of Prankard's sister by the deceased had thrown an extenuating light upon the motive of the murder. A verdict of guilty had been coupled with a recommendation to mercy, and a sentence of penal servitude for the term of twenty-one years had been passed upon the prisoner. That Thomas Prankard had been transported to Western Australia, 
but that, on account of certain services rendered upon the occasion of a convict outbreak against the authorities, his term of punishment had been curtailed, and at the expiration of fourteen years he had received his discharge and had quitted the colony. That he had been known at Ballarat Diggings and at other places under the alias of Thomas Longleat, and had, under that name, entered into partnership as a bullock-driver with one Jem Baggett, a ticket-of-leave man. That papers containing a full account of the trial and conviction, and proofs of the identity of Thomas Prankart with the honourable gentleman who represented Kuya, should be laid before the house. Mr. Middleton, with a brief justification of his part in the discharge of this painful duty, and a finely turned, somewhat sarcastic appeal to the judgment of that honourable house to decide whether it was conducive to the reputation of the colony that, at this most important crisis in its history, a convicted murderer should hold the reins of government and appear before the imperial authorities as the chosen representative of Leckart's land. An old member rose, and after carefully asserting his independence of personal bias, proceeded to take a temperate view of the allegations which had been hurled at the Premier. Never, during the whole course of his parliamentary experience, had he assisted at a more painful debate. In the annals of colonial legislature there was no precedent for such a scene as had taken place. He thought that, as the matter had gone so far, it ought to be thoroughly investigated and cleared up. But this should be done outside the walls of that house. These charges ought not to go forth to the world unless they were disproved or substantiated. He, for his part, did not attach any importance to the accusations which had been brought against the Premier. He was convinced that Mr. Middleton had been the dupe of evil-disposed persons whose object it was to ruin the credit of the government, and that the leader of the opposition would find it a difficult matter to supply the evidence which was wanting to corroborate his statements. The whole story carried absurdity upon its face. Was it probable that, had the tale been true, it would not have leaked out ere now? It was his opinion that nothing more than an emphatic denial on the part of the Premier was needed to set doubts at rest upon both sides of the House. He deplored that on the onset of the session the attention of the House should be devoted to a merely sensational subject, to the exclusion of important business, etc., etc. There was a brief whispered consultation among the ministers. Dyson Maddox bent forward and spoke to the Premier. You will answer this cowardly attack? Longleat's head was still bent. He lifted it and exhibited a ghastly face to his colleague. "'Good God!' exclaimed Dyson, startled by his appearance. "'What has happened to you? Are you ill?' "'I, I am ill,' repeated Longleat, speaking in a hollow tone with a hesitating emphasis upon his words. "'There is something the matter with my head. For God's sake, get the house adjourned. I am—' not equal to making a speech. Of course it is all a d—blank—d-lie. You don't want me to swear that, I suppose. I tell you that I am ill. I think that I have had a sort of fit. The whole thing may go to the devil for what I care. You must deny the charge, urged Dyson. Make an effort. Don't you see that everyone's eyes are upon you? Collect yourself, and get up and give Middleton the lie. The confused buzz which had spread down each side of the chamber and was rapidly deepening into a roar drowned a brief colloquy between the ministers. Cries of, Order! Shame! Speak up like a man! sounded above the tumult. 
the excitement had become so personal and intense that all other considerations were swept before it as straws in the face of a wind. To restore order was beyond the power of any brand-new speaker, and indeed that functionary, forgetting the burden of his lately acquired dignity, and absorbed by the interest of the scene, leaned forward over his desk and, fixing upon Longleat a gaze of eager curiosity, joined in the general murmur of expectation. The death-like pallor of the Premier's face, his downcast attitude and evident hesitation to meet the charge, had caused a thrill of doubt to rush through the assembly, and, by the wonder-loving and malevolent, were construed into a half-admission of guilt. But distrust was soon succeeded by a revulsion. Longleat rose. He stepped forward with his burly form erect, his chest heaving, and his underlip protruding, in ghastly mockery of his usual attitude while haranguing the people. His gaze, half wrathful, half desperate, swept the house from the speaker's chair to below the bar, and a profound silence fell upon the noisy occupants of the benches. Upon every face, save that of the leader of the opposition, which was sneering and impassive, there was depicted the most breathless anxiety. With the consciousness of personal influence there came once more to Longleat the strong sense of predominance. He spoke. Never had his voice rung out more sonorously. Never had his rough, powerful oratory made its mark more surely. He thundered forth defiance of his enemies. He inveighed against the conversion of an honourable debate into a vehicle for falsehood and calumny. He appealed to the confidence of his friends, to the country which he had faithfully served, to the Parliament of Leckhart's land, towards which he had never failed in respect. He denied, upon his honour as a member of that house, that he had ever committed a crime punishable by the laws of England, that he had ever been in Western Australia in his life, or had heard the name of Prankard before that afternoon. The sweat stood in great drops upon his brow. He staggered and fell heavily to his seat. He knew that he had struck his last blow. Dyson Maddox rose to make a brief explanation on the part of his colleague. The Premier, he stated, had since the meeting of the House been attacked by sudden illness. Only the urgency of the occasion had induced him to remain through the debate and had enabled him to deliver the powerful speech to which they had listened. He was physically unequal to further argument or contradiction. The monstrous nature of the charge must be evident to all, and called for no comment upon the part of the government beyond the Premier's vigorous denial. It remained now for the leader of the opposition to make good his case. He, Maddox, desired to call again the Speaker's attention to the irrelevancy of the discussion to the subject at issue, and moved formally the adjournment of the House for the resumption of the debate upon the address and reply under more seemly conditions. Mr. Middleton stepped forward mid groans and hisses and for some time was not allowed to proceed. At last, with difficulty, he obtained a hearing for his statement that he would not oppose the motion of the Minister for Lands for the adjournment of the debate, that upon the day but one following he would be in a position to present further and conclusive evidence in support of the charge he had brought against the Premier, and that he was ready to lay all papers connected with it upon the table of the House. There was a slight altercation as to whether the House should or should not be adjourned. An independent member deplored the personal attack upon the Premier, but vindicated the right of the House to pass judgment upon the charge. Honourable members, he averred, might abuse each other with impunity during the heat of debate, but such an accusation, directed against the political leader of the colony, would go forth to the world and cover the chamber with disgrace, 
unless disproved and repudiated. He had, of course, heard rumors that the government was to be attacked, but he had little thought that a charge of this kind would be brought forward, or that the leader of the opposition would make himself responsible for it. "'I accept the responsibility,' gravely affirmed Mr. Middleton. A member upon the government side spoke next in hot defense of his chief, concluding with a vigorous denunciation of the tactics of his opponents. This, then, was the grand opposition attack. This, their noble policy. They did not care for a policy to be advocated for the colony so long as they could impeach the premier. The business of the country might go to the dogs, provided their leader got on the treasury bench. Finally, the motion was put and passed in the affirmative, and the House broke up. The members gathered in excited groups below the bar, some lingering, others passing eagerly to the smoking-room or crowding in the lobby. Middleton was among the first to disappear. It was evident that he was not desirous of an encounter with the Premier. Dyson Maddox stood beside his chief, the centre of a knot of ministers, who talked excitedly, more among themselves than to their leader. Several of the ministerial supporters approached and expressed their horror and indignation at Middleton's attack and their sympathy with the premier in his indisposition. But their overtures were awkwardly offered and apathetically received. Longleat hardly replied. Of what consequence would it be on the morrow whether his comrades believed him to be a murderer today? Of what use to continue struggling against fate, which had evidently doomed him to destruction? A reactionary wave of doubt had succeeded the enthusiasm with which his denial had been greeted. In the minds of all, there lurked an uneasy consciousness that something was amiss. The word murder has an ugly sound, and the shock of the accusation had been so startling that the members had been unable to collect their thoughts sufficiently to reason calmly upon the charge. The whole proceeding had been unconstitutional, unprecedented. The impeachment had shaken even well-seasoned nerves. Though the convict taint is not unknown in the chambers of Australian legislature, Perhaps nowhere is it more severely reprobated. Had the Premier been convicted of a political error, a moral peccadillo, or even of malpractices in his administration, there were many to whom the misdemeanor would have appeared comparatively trivial. Bureaucratic morality in Australia admits of wide generalizations, and though the liaison with Mrs. Valency and bestowal of the Gundaroo appointment upon her husband had gone far towards weakening Longleat's social reputation, his political prestige had not been impaired. But this stroke at the very root of the Premier's character, this bold assertion of duplicity and crime in a career which for twenty years had appeared open and honourable, was too grave a matter to be lightly dismissed. The deepest convictions were undermined, and those who but a few hours before had only dreamed of applauding were now startled into something like condemnation. After the first natural recoil, many reasoned among themselves that a man so astute as Mr. Middleton would have hesitated to bring forward a charge which he was unable to substantiate. Others maintained that the whole proceeding was a last coup on the part of a revengeful minority, and that the story had been trumped up with a view to awaken distrust and cripple the forces of the government. While others, granting that the leader of the opposition had been misled by false information, defended his conduct in bringing the matter before Parliament instead of attacking the Premier through the medium of the newspapers or allowing the information to leak out through private channels. Longleat spoke in constrained tones with his eyes again upon the ground. "'I am ready,' he said, in answer to the eager inquiries with which he was beset, "'to meet this calumny, 
to prove how monstrous it is. I can say no more. Little, you will hear from me the first thing tomorrow. I, I am not myself tonight, as you see. An attack of the heart. I am subject to them occasionally. It, it seized me immediately after the opening this morning. I had doubts about being present at the debate, but I, as you know, I have never neglected my duty to the public. Good night. Dyson, perhaps you will walk with me to the corner. I must go home. It was a fit said one of the members who was a doctor to the minister for works. If anything happens tonight, I shall not be in the least surprised. I have seen it coming on for weeks. These bull-necked men are never safe. Only his temperate habits have, till the last few months, kept him in health. And you may depend upon it, the strain of the elections and excitement from other causes, you know what I mean, have conduced to this sort of thing. The speaker made a significant gesture with his hand to his mouth, which was a calumny indeed as far as Longleat was concerned, but which was the source of a malignant report circulated later. "'A queer story, that of Middleton's,' continued the doctor. "'Now I begin to understand the rumours that have been flying about during the last two days. They say that Valancy, who is mad about his wife, has had something to do with it. By the way, there's a story afloat that she went off in the Hydaspes today.' to join Fielding in Sydney. Can that have had anything to do with the Premier's sudden attack? And that old Ferris, the cracked storekeeper at Kurlbin, supplied the information. There was something deucedly odd about his connection with Longleat. Well, after all, it is not so very unlikely. They call it murder, but hang me if I don't think that a man is half justified in killing another man for seducing his sister. Women are always at the bottom of mischief and Valancy gets his revenge, though I should think it is rather a good thing for him to have got quit of his wife. Things come pretty square in this world. It is not particularly creditable to the colony to have an old hand at the head of affairs, but I don't see that it makes much odds to his policy. This latitudinarian view of the case admitted a free argument. Meanwhile the Premier, accompanied by Dyson, had left the chamber. End of chapter 41 Read by Celine Major.